So as I kneel in my back study to pray for the lost, not, not just some nameless, faceless mass of humanity, but individuals, men, women, children, made in the image of the Almighty God, as I picture their faces, and I think back to gospel conversations we've had, and I look forward to gospel conversations that I hope to have, as I'm there and I, and I, and I pray for their salvation, I'm struck by one very humbling reality. The fact that there is nothing there is absolutely nothing that I can say or do to lead a single one of them to faith in Christ Jesus. Unless, unless the sovereign God of the universe, the one that has made and sustains everything that is, unless he is determined according to his good and perfect and eternal will, that he will send his spirit to awaken them, give them the ability to rightly hear and believe the gospel. Unless this happens, there will be no true conversion. There will be nothing resembling true saving faith. Fallen man simply does not have the ability in and of himself to turn from his sin and trust in Jesus Christ. We've referred to this over and over again throughout the last 10 months. We've talked about it as God giving men eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. The fancy Bible word used in Titus 3.5 is regeneration. Jesus spoke about this as being born again in John 3. Unless God does this invisible, miraculous, Wondrous work, unless he grants men spiritual life and enables them to respond in faith, there will be no real conversion. There is nothing that we can do to change that. No matter how passionately we preach, no matter how clearly we speak, unless God chooses to do this work, unless God intervenes, unless God does the thing that only God can do, there will be no new life whatsoever. Paul spoke about this, Romans 9, 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does this mean that our gospel efforts are worthless, that they're meaningless, that they're pointless? Never be. He says, Paul says in that very same letter, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear, hear without someone preaching? God uses the preaching of ordinary men and women to call other ordinary men and women to faith. For those that he grants this spiritual life, that while their physical ears hear the preaching of a man, these newfound spiritual ears hear the word of their father, like a king summoning his subjects calling them to himself. And because we do not know who God is going to work on in this way, we do not know who God has chosen to bring to this spiritual life, so we preach to everybody. We preach to all 
Because we trust that God will save some. Indiscriminately, we preach this gospel. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 23, and then I skip to verse 25. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Then the Lord's brother in James 1, 18, of his own will, that is God's will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Beloved, it's an incredible mystery that God would see fit to use broken men and women like you and like me to preach his gospel and to call people to life. That those that he's chosen to be born again and believe, that with our mouths as we proclaim, God is also speaking. He's also calling them to life, calling them to faith. That almost like a newborn baby that comes out of his mother's womb and that first act is that, <gasps> that gasp for air. That his very first act in this new life is going to be to turn and to trust. Simultaneously from our perspective, at the exact same time, we see people responding in this faith. This seems to be the picture that the Lord paints for us. Luke writes about it in Acts. Acts 16, 14 talks about a woman called Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This seems to be the normal, ordinary pattern in Scripture of salvation, that while man preaches the Word of God, God must awaken them. He must open their heart. He must open their eyes. He must open their ears calling them to believe the word that is preached. This unseen work, this must happen in order for faith to spring forth. Listen to the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Then he speaks to the Jews after the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What a free will. Does this mean that free will is only an illusion? Dear friends, we know that's not true. God speaks very clearly to the fact that man makes real choices with real consequences. That we will answer for every single decision that we make in this world. At the same time, Scripture tells us, that anyone who comes to the Lord, anyone that comes to faith in Christ Jesus, that he will receive them all. In that very same conversation, Jesus said this, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then again in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You need to hear me very, very clearly. Anyone, whoever, comes to faith in Jesus Christ the Lord, repents of their sin, God will receive them. This is not a shell game. We're not extending the gospel to everyone, an offer that is only available to some. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet we know that not everyone can call on the name of the Lord. That unless he does this work, unless he grants us this new spiritual life, there will be no response of faith. We know that 
for those that he calls to this new spiritual life, that they will freely, of their own free will, they will freely choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Those that God has chosen to bring to this new life, they will freely choose to trust and to believe. Those that he does not, will not. I know how uncomfortable this makes us. Listen to the Lord's words again in John 6, uh, 63 through 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those that were who, those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Allow me to speak plainly. This regeneration, this quickening, this new birth, it must come before saving faith, not the other way around. In our experience, it seems to be almost instantaneous. So it's very difficult. We can't put a chronological order on this, but the logical order, the necessary order, it must remain. Our faith does not originate. Our faith does not initiate God's giving of spiritual life. Regeneration is wholly and completely the work of God. There is nothing that we can or will do, past, present, or future, to entice them to this or to warrant this gracious gift. Now, from our perspective, all we see is that a man preaches the gospel, a person responds in faith, and then we see evidence of a new changed life. It very much appears from our perspective as though faith is what kicks this whole thing off because all we see are the results. All we see are the effects while the work of the Spirit goes unseen. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We see the trees sway. We feel the chill in the air. We cannot control the wind. We cannot see the activity of the wind itself, only its effects. This is the case of this new spiritual life with everyone, even in our own experience. We see the effects, but we do not see the work of the Spirit. And I recognize that this is not what is taught in churches all over this country today. I recognize that for many of you in this room, the things that I've just said may seem controversial even. I recognize the tension that is in this room right now, and I don't take that lightly. I know how many of us have been taught that you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then you are born again. It just simply does not match up with the overarching revelation of God's word. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. Physical death later, spiritual death now. Spiritually dead men cannot bring themselves to faith. There's not a one of you in this room that can preach a dead man to life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, praise God for the but God statements in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The unmerited, undeserved grace of God that calls men to life. And again, I'd say, I know that this puts me in the minority. I know that this puts us in the minority of 21st century evangelical churches. While there's hardly a believer out there that wouldn't join with the prophet Jonah in crying, salvation comes from the Lord. But at the very same time, we cannot stand the thought that we are not in control. We cannot stand the thought. It's so much easier to believe that salvation begins with us making a choice. This all begins with us making a choice to turn and believe. And I know how challenging it is for us to grapple with the reality that the man that sits next to us in the cubicle at work, or even tougher than that, that our very own children, that because of the spiritual death brought on by sin, that they don't have the innate ability to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. I know how difficult that is. It is hard for me. Conversations over the last two years have revealed to me how hard it is for so many of you I know how much we wish we could remove passages of Scripture at times because they challenge us. Passages like Romans 9, 15 through 16, where we read the words of God to Moses and then Paul's commentary. It wrecks me. Romans 9, 15 through 16. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And our flesh cries out, Foul! This is not fair. How can you tell me it is my responsibility? How can you tell me that the only way to escape the fires of hell are to turn and to trust in Jesus Christ and then to tell me that I'm not capable of doing it in and of myself? Beloved, I get it. I get it. That's why preachers don't preach it. Because it makes us seem really small. And it makes God seem really big. But I need you to see the danger in this line of thinking. As we look to the living God, the one whose power knows no end, whose wisdom and knowledge and goodness and power knows no end, we look to him and because we in our finite minds cannot grasp the reality of what he is doing. Because we cannot stand not being in control. Because our hearts cannot stand to live under the tension that this brings. We do everything that we can to remove it. So we end up standing on some really shaky theology. Now this theology, it may seem right to us when times are well. But church, may I tell you that when you're going through the fire, when everything around you is shaken, and moving, and threatening. Your thoughts keep you up at night. If you're not standing on the rock-solid truth of God's word, you'll find you've got nothing. 
Paul had opportunity in this letter, his letter to the Romans. This would have been a perfect time for him to alleviate that tension. This would have been the perfect time for him to say something, to remove the tension that exists between our free will and God's sovereignty. And instead, what does he say? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? You don't think Paul lived under this tension? You don't think the first century saints felt this tension? But each of us must determine. Will I trust my own thoughts? Will I trust my own desires? Will I trust the things that seem right to me, the things which make me comfortable, or will I trust in God's word? Will I trust in God's word even when my mind can't comprehend it? Will I trust in God's word even when it makes me beyond uncomfortable? The same word which very clearly says that people make very real choices with very real consequences. That at the end of this life, we will stand before God and we will answer for every thought, every word, every deed that happens in this lifetime. That we are completely without excuse. And that only those that turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord will be forgiven, will be saved. And that any who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. And yet, that for those that come to this faith in Jesus Christ, we hear the words, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That as we go out and we share the gospel with the lost world, we recognize that Scripture also tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We are preaching to dead people. We're preaching to people that cannot hear and cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ unless God acts. And we will never in this lifetime fully comprehend, fully understand, fully wrap our minds around, fully get comfortable with this paradox. And yet if we're to submit to the inerrancy and authority of God's word, we must accept that it's true. Church, I cannot express to you how many times in the last three days my flesh has asked, why in the world would you get up and preach this? There are going to be people in that room which may leave your church because what you say hurts them so badly. Because what you say confronts what they have been taught for their entire believing life. Why do that? Why get up and say these words? Why make people's head hurt? Why make their heart ache? Because the Bible says it. We don't have a right to remove the things that make us uncomfortable. And we cannot know God if we don't preach the full counsel of his word. We're creating a God that looks like us. We're creating a God that makes us happy. That's there to serve us. So I pray that you find comfort where I find comfort. Some weeks back, we heard the people saying of Jesus, he does all things exceedingly well. Pray that you find comfort as you come to the end of this story with the realization that there will not be a sinner in heaven, excuse me, a saint in heaven nor a sinner in hell. There will be sinners in heaven as well. There will not be a one of us that will be able to cry foul. We'll be able to claim that God has acted unjustly or unrightly or that his ways are not exceedingly good. That we will offer up to him unending worship 
and praise because of the mercy that he has extended to those he has called and the judgment that he poured out on those he has not. In this life, we cannot get there because we're so clouded by sin, we're so clouded by selfishness, and frankly, because we've lived under such faulty preaching. For far too long, men have shied away from these things. Because words like this are not the way that you build a church. But guess what? I'm not building a church. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is building his church. And whatever we build in our own power, whatever we build by tickling the ears of men, that's not the thing that's going to stand against the gates of hell. And so... We trust him in this. And I know, based on conversations, these conversations seem to have escalated over the last few months. God seems to be just pressing us up against this and asking, do you really believe this? Are you really willing to believe the full counsel of my word, even when the world tells you that you're crazy? So I know how many of you have struggled with this, how many of you wrestle. Church, wrestling is good. Keep wrestling. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe it just because I say it. Don't believe it because Luther said it, or Calvin said it, or Zwingli said it. Go to God's word and see what he says. Wrestle. Be humbled. Fall on your face and beg for understanding. Allow your head to hurt. Allow your heart to ache. And at the end of it, determine... I will trust in the word of my God. I want you to know at the same time that at all times my door remains open. God hasn't just called me to preach from the safe distance of this platform. He's called me to shepherd. He's called me to do life alongside you, and this is a perfect opportunity for that. So that as you wrestle, you find yourself becoming discouraged. find yourself wanting to give up the fight. Come to me. Not because I've got all the answers. Lord knows. That's not the case. I know how inadequate I am to preach this message. I know how far short I will fall. And yet I'm promising you that if you come to me, we will wrestle with this together. We'll see what God is doing, not just in your life, but in our life corporately as a body. How he's blessing us for doing the hard work of wrestling with his deep, Difficult doctrines. So why? Why would I ruin a perfectly good worship service with something like this? Why would I stand up here in the middle of Mark's gospel? We're telling stories about Jesus feeding and healing people. That makes everybody happy. Why would I step up here and start talking about something like regeneration? Because it seems to me that we're coming to a turning point in Mark's gospel. You remember back that as Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee that the disciples on that day, they asked a very critical question. What kind of man is this? And from that point forward, we have really been building towards this crescendo, which is Peter's confession. The real centerpiece of Mark's gospel was the confession that God willing will come to in a few weeks where we hear, you are the Christ. It's from that point where Jesus first speaks explicitly about his death and his resurrection, and he turns his back 
from the religious leaders there in Galilee and makes his steady march towards the cross, focusing his attentions on his disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead. But in the moments leading up to this, I believe that what God is doing is he's giving us a powerful picture of the things that we've just spoken about. You remember a few weeks back in Jesus healing the man that was deaf. We see the picture there of God granting ears that hear. In a few weeks as we come to Jesus dealing with the blind man there in Bethsaida, we see a picture of God giving men eyes to see. And then in between, in this week's text and next, we're going to come to issues of the heart. We're going to see two very different groups with hardened hearts. We're going to see God dealing in a very different way with each of these two groups. Now, in Scripture, the heart is more than just that muscle in your chest that pumps blood through your body. It's more than just the place where all your emotions spring up. We find in, in Scripture that the heart really is at the core of who man is. We read in Psalms 37, 4 that the heart is the place where our desires come from. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Genesis 6, 5, we see that the heart is the place where our thoughts originate. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. In Proverbs 16, 1, we see that that's a place where man makes his plans. The plans of the heart belong to the man. Jesus taught very plainly that it's from our heart where evil springs up. Mark 7, 21 through 23. From within you, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, from within the heart, and they defile a person. Scripture really does teach at the root of who a person is, the seed of our thoughts and our emotions and our desires. It all comes from the heart. God made clearly to the prophet Samuel as he went. He called the boy King David to himself. He said that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Jesus had made clear that if your heart is far off from God, if your heart is separated from God, that there's nothing that you can do outwardly to please him. There's nothing you can do outwardly to know him. There's nothing you can do outwardly to honor and to worship and to obey and to be blessed by him. If your heart is far away, that even the plain truth of God's word even the straightforward preaching of the gospel, even the preaching of Jesus Christ himself falls on deaf ears when it reaches a hardened heart. Ephesians 4.18 says this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. A hardened heart is the root of sin. It's the root of faulty and foolish thinking. It's the root of all manner of evil. Fallen man does not need new thoughts. He needs a new heart. And man cannot give himself a new heart. Do not have the ability to perform this heart transplant that is needed. So we must turn to God. That was the promise that he made in the new covenant. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is the promised new birth, the regeneration, a softened heart. A heart, on, a heart on which God will write his law. A heart which loves God. A heart that delights in his law. A heart that cherishes his son. A heart that loves his neighbor and walks in obedience. This is the heart that God has promised. So as we come to these two texts, I want you to notice the difference. Both groups have hardened hearts. Yet for one group, God will hand over to the hardness of their heart and they will freely choose 
to reject him. For another group, he will soften their heart. He will call them to life, and they will freely choose to receive him. So that's the introduction. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. It's a very short text. We're going to read verse 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Help us to know you more because of this encounter with your word. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Jesus' last words to the Pharisees had not been soft. You'll remember that they had come and they had confronted him because his disciples did not wash their hands as was told in the traditions of men. And so Jesus called them hypocrites. He said that you speak of God, that you honor him with your lips, and yet your heart, hearts are far away. So surely the Pharisees had been waiting there for another crack at Jesus. They were always waiting, always arguing, always confronting. Matthew tells us that they were joined by the Sadducees. Now, we don't have time to fully talk about these two different groups, and yet what we know very plainly is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, there was no love lost between these groups. They couldn't agree on much, but they could agree that Jesus needed to be destroyed. Much like the Pharisees with the political group called the Herodians. Again, they weren't friends, and yet they were joined together in their hatred of Jesus. Is there any more pitiful group in all the world than a group that is joined together by hatred of someone else? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That doesn't work. And yet these men were joined together. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven and to test him. Along with arguing, they sought a sign from heaven. Now, many people had come to Jesus seeking miracle. they were de miracles. They were desperate. They needed help. They came and they fell down and then moved by compassion. Jesus would heal. He would perform. And all along the while, giving evidence of who he was, assurance that his gospel was true. And yet, for these men, they didn't come seeking help. They didn't come with hearts of faith. They came to test Jesus. The word for test there, perazo, it's the same word that's, that's translated as tempted when we read about the tempting of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days in Mark 1.13. It's this temptation that Satan came before Jesus and tempted him to abandon the cross, tempted him to distrust the Father, to take up his own power, and to receive something outside of what God's will for his sending was. It is promised to him. That if he would bow down and worship, he would give him all the nations of the earth. His promise to him was that he could have glory without the suffering. Because Satan knew that the cross equaled his destruction. And so he was going to do everything he could to keep Jesus from going to the cross. He would use others to tempt him in this way. You'll remember this text that we're moving towards now with Peter. After Jesus preaches very plainly to him about the reality of his death and his resurrection, that Peter objected vehemently. He objected. Scripture tells us he rebuked. Yet Jesus turns with a rebuke of his own and tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is the heart of Satan. This is the work of Satan to discourage and distract Jesus from the reason that he came. And now the Pharisees. Jesus has spoken very plainly about who their father was. He says, you are of your father the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desire. They were doing the work of their father. That's where this ever-hardening heart leads. Matched up with people that you have no use for otherwise other than for your hatred of God's own son and doing the work of the devil. Testing Jesus, demanding a sign. Specifically, they demanded a sign from heaven. So apparently, we can gather this from the teaching in Mark 3. Apparently, they believed that these earthly signs, the physical healings and such, that those things could be counterfeit, that those things could be done in the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. And so they demanded a sign in the heavens, an authenticating sign, a sign which assured them that Jesus was who he had said to be because for them, they hadn't seen enough. Yet, beloved, Jesus had given more than enough. It was enough for the true disciples. It was enough for another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. You'll remember that he said, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But to these hardened hearts, these blinded eyes, these deaf ears, these futile minds, there was no amount of evidence that was going to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ because the problem was their heart. It was their will. It wasn't a lack of evidence. Jesus says in John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If the will is to do God's will, and God's ultimate will, of course, is that we come to faith, we come to belief in his son, Christ Jesus. But those that come like this, you will know. You will see and you will believe. In those times of unbelief, you will cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. These Pharisees had no such desire. They desired their own reputations, their own way of life, their own pride, their own reputations, much more than they desired to know the will of God, to do the will of God. Now, they would see a sign in the sky. They would see a sign in the heavens. At the time of Jesus' death, we're told, the earth went dark for three hours. The sun lost its light, and yet still these people would not believe. We know that in the last days of the last days, as the sun becomes black like sackcloth and the full moon becomes like blood, it will be too late. There's no sign that's going to save them. These hardened, unbelieving, stubborn, prideful men. They were unwilling, they were unable to believe. And it wasn't because of lack of evidence. The Son of God stood before them. They had seen plenty of miracles. They had seen his compassion. They had seen the love of God on full display. They had heard him preaching as one with authority like they had never heard before. And yet because of their hardness of heart, they wanted to argue. They wanted to demand another sign. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is the same root word that we saw when Jesus sighed with the deaf man, stenazo. Anastanazo was the word here. It means to sigh deeply. Feeling the weight of brokenness. Being amongst these hardened hearts. These people that refuse to seek God's will. These people that refuse to understand the message that he preached. Because of the hardness of their heart, he sighed. These men who had every possible advantage. They had seen things the likes of which you and I have not seen. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, standing before them face to face, physically. The law for countless years before them, waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive. And now the king was here, and because of the hardness of their heart, they would not receive him. They hated him. They would call for his death. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? The phrase generation here, this isn't just talking about Jesus' contemporaries. I don't believe he's even just talking about a literal generation in the 40-year since. I think he's talking about the unbelieving world from then to now. Those with the hardened hearts. Those that love the darkness because their ways are evil. Those that will not come to the light. Those that would prefer to live in the darkness rather than to come to the light because they know that their works will be exposed. Because they know that their ways are evil. Believe that this is the generation he's speaking to. Because of their love of self and sin. 
blind, deaf, and hardened. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, he had performed countless miracles, and he wasn't going to stop performing miracles. He would continue to heal and to do miraculous things from this point forward. But to these people, they would see no more. Jesus is not a performing monkey, and he does not dance for your entertainment. He does not move on a whim. He does not respond to this tempting and this testing. He knew the hearts of these men, and so he would not play their game. Now, the Greek here is pretty interesting in the way that he says this, because it reads something more like this. Truly I say to you, may I die before giving this generation a sign. It's as if Jesus were swearing upon himself, I will not give you another sign. I will not work for your affection. I will not play into your game. Now, I, this draws my heart as I read through this, as, the, as it did another, no, a number of other commentators. It would draw your name to the Israelites there in the wilderness. You'll remember that God had performed many miraculous works for them. Even before he called them out of Egypt, he was performing these signs and these wonders and these works and just showing himself to be mighty on their behalf. And then throughout the wilderness, he continued, and yet they tested him. In Exodus 17, we read that they tested him because they didn't have water. It's when the testing comes, when time gets hard. So they cried out to God, demanding water. And so God tells Moses to go and strike the rock, and he strikes the rock, and water comes. And the place was called Massa and Meribah because the people tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's really the question the Pharisees were asking. Is this the Lord that's with us or not? And so they tested him. Now the results of this testing for the people that wandered in the wilderness, they would be very dire, horrific in fact, as God did what he said he would do, and he led them towards the promised land, and yet they refused to move. In the hardness of heart, they refused to trust. They refused to believe. They refused to reach out their hand and receive the thing that God had promised for them. And so they would die in the wilderness. For 40 years, they would wander around until that entire generation would die in the wilderness. Not because God hadn't given them enough evidence. Not because God hadn't shown himself. Not because God hadn't given them every opportunity to believe, but because of their hardness of their heart. And so God sweared, enough is enough. You shall not enter. We read about it in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He swore. Giving you all the evidence that you're going to receive. No more prodding. No more proving. You will not enter this place. You will not enter this promise. You will not enter my rest. So the author of the Hebrews, he was pleading with the people. These people that had come all the way up to the edge. These people that had taken the steps. They had heard the word. They had been exposed to the gospel. They had seen works of the Spirit. They were right there at the edge, and he's calling them to keep coming. Don't get hardened. Don't harden your hearts. Don't turn back as those people did. Beloved, I would say the same thing to many of us today. Let's be conscious of the fact that there may be people in this room that much like the Hebrew audience, much like the Israelites in the wilderness, you've seen much of God's mighty work. You've been exposed to the gospel. You've been around the people filled with his spirit. You've seen the blessings that come from that. And yet you're always on the edge. You just won't move just won't step, just won't reach out your hand and take hold of the promise and faith that he has called us to. You're always wanting one more sign, one more word, one more something. 
And he's warning, don't do this. Don't do this. The Holy Spirit says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God has not promised, nor is he obliged to continue to strive with man. There's no promise that he will not hand you over to the hardness of your heart. That's the picture we see in Romans 1. God handing us over to our passions, our evil passions, our sinful desires. Handing us over completely. Once and for all hardening us. Handing us over completely to an eternity of complete and total separation from him. But I thought you said God was the one that softened hearts. I thought you said that in... Unless God softens your heart, then nothing's going to happen. So what are you yelling at us about it for? Why are you telling me not to soften my heart? Why are you telling me to move forward in faith if it's all up to God's sovereign plan? Man, I want to go. I want to leave. Love, yes. Yes. Everything we've just said is true. And yet the God that is ordained, those that will be saved, he's also ordained the means, the way. And the way is by speaking his word so that those that are his will hear his voice and obey. So that those that hear this warning will comply. That's why it says today if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, not just the voice of a preacher, if you hear God's voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, saying, do not harden your heart. The Scripture goes on to say to exhort one another, to guard our own hearts. So I'm here exhorting you. But if all you're hearing is my voice, then it's not going to matter. But today you hear God's voice saying to you, do not harden your hearts. Then you guard your heart. You do not harden your heart. You don't fall like the Israelites in the wilderness. You don't fall away like some of the Hebrews were on the verge of doing. You hear his voice. There were some Jews in the temple, and they'd come to Jesus, and they were asking, are you the Christ? And Jesus said this in John 10, 25 through 27. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When God calls, when he awakens, when he gives you this heart transplant, is that very first act, you hear his voice and you know that he is your father. You hear the voice and you're drawn to it. You know, when my little girls were born, there's something incredible. Those of you that are fathers and mothers, there's something incredible that happens there. Perhaps it's because we talk to our children as they're in their mother's womb for the nine months leading up to it. There's something miraculous that happens as your baby is born and you say, hey, Annabelle, and their eyes or their head perhaps follows that way. She just knows that that's a voice to be trusted. She somehow knows that's the voice of her father. She didn't choose the family she was born to. She didn't choose to be born at all. And yet she knows that that's a voice to be trusted. If you hear his voice, you trust his voice. How do you know if you're his? Because he calls you. You hear his voice because you're one of his sheep. You don't have to play the second guessing game. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Trusting that if he speaks to you in this way, but if he calls you in this way, that you are his and you will be saved. And he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Church, I don't know that there's any sadder words in the whole of Mark's gospel. Not another word. You remember that as we come towards the day of the crucifixion, that 
Evil King Herod wanted a sign from Jesus. He called Jesus, and he wanted a sign, and Jesus wouldn't even speak. Wouldn't even under, utter a word, wouldn't even entertain him. And in this case, he wasn't going to waste another word. He certainly wasn't going to perform another sign. He turned his back, he got in the boat, and he sailed away. Church, I have to imagine that for some of these Pharisees, that very image haunts them in hell today. The Son of God sailing away, turning his back without another word. He had stood before them. He had preached the very same gospel that had called so many others to life, and yet they rejected. They knew that the opportunity was there to repent, believe, and be saved, and yet because of the hardness of their heart, they willingly, they chose to reject this gospel. Beloved, we cannot know those that God has chosen to call to this new life. We cannot know the exact ways in which he does this. It is an incredible mystery that will continue to confound us until our very last day, and yet we trust that it is true. But my promise to you is this, that if today you hear his voice, if you turn and you trust in his son, Christ Jesus, you repent of your sins, he will receive you with open arms. He has never once stiff-armed a man that came to him in true, repentant faith in his son, Christ Jesus. For those of you that refuse, there is no promise of another chance. There is no promise that he will not completely and totally hand you over. There is no promise that there will be a future opportunity for this. For those of you that have already turned and repented and trusted in his son, Christ Jesus, the promise is that those that believe those that endure to the end will be saved. So do not harden your hearts. Guard your heart. Exhort one another. Watch out for one another. Beloved, we're a family. We need to be looking out for each other. Holding each other up when we're weak. Preaching the truth of God's word. Building each other up. This does not work if we do not heed the word of God. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the deep and difficult doctrines of your word. Father, we know that your ways are not our ways, and man, is that a good thing. If someone had been foolish enough to give us a universe to run, I don't even know what it would have looked like. Father, we trust that you do all things well that at no point in any way will we be able to accuse you of doing any less than good, abundantly good. So we submit wholly and completely to you as the sovereign God of all that is. Father, we know that our flesh, it's so many times our flesh and our sin, it despises this reality. We want to be the God of our universe. We want to be the king of our own castle. So, Father, if you find in us a heart like that, would you please just absolutely rid it, chase it from our body. Father, if there's any of us here that have been found with hardened hearts, pray that you would soften us.
she would call us. She would give us the gift of faith that we would reach out and receive the good gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray all these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen.